0: Bible students, welcome to Christadelphian videos, and this topic, Rome's struggle with Christianity. Now, this is a summary of a lot of information, and as, as such, there will be areas where I'm sure your interest will be drawn away to things that we don't say too much about. There, are, there is much more to be said But we want to give you a sort of an overview of this topic. Rome's been around for a long time. That is the city of Rome. And it has been struggling with Christianity for uh, 2,000 years. In fact, it was mentioned in the Bible long before Christian times came about. You can see in your screen, the upper left, the uh, time when Rome came to be a city in Bible terms. It was about the time that Isaiah started to prophesy, so that goes back uh, seven hundred years before Christ. Then, if you look at the Colosseum, you can see that which is still there for viewing today, but something that was built about the time of of the ministry of Jesus Christ in the first century, and then the Pantheon, which was built uh, somewhere in the second century which is still there, something to be seen and and to be reckoned with in terms of how Christianity has had to deal with these buildings and the teachings that were behind them. And then, of course, finally, the Vatican, which uh, has been around since the 16th century and very influential in what it has done uh, in Christendom since that time. So there's a lot of history involved. It goes back, as I say, to 700 years before uh, Christian times with the prophecies of the prophets Isaiah, uh, prophets uh, Ezekiel, etc. Let's get started. The first thing that I want to illustrate to you is that God's law, which was given back in the days of Moses, long before Christian times was that we have to watch out for symbols of adoration, ancient symbols of adoration. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you won't uh, dispute this if you remember the Ten Commandments. uh, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So there has always been this wrestling with these ancient symbols that have come to us out of history. And uh, when we think about them, because you can go to a museum and you can find quite a bit of information about them. So look at this, for instance, this ank from Egypt. It goes back a long, long time, uh, probably before uh, Israel was in Egypt. And this has a meaning, we don't really, it's not important for us to establish that meaning, but it's just a symbol. You see it often in ancient art, but God's view of these things was don't make something like that. So God had set this up in times related to the Israelitish history at the earliest times. Again, he'd said in Deuteronomy chapter 4, take heed to yourselves Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God made it understandable. Don't have these images. Don't adore them. Don't have anything to do, not even to acquire where they came from or what uh, they people believed and what they did who had them. Now I found in a trip to the seven ecclesias in the uh, area of Pergamos, a statue to this, this person, um, Escleptus, who was supposedly the, the god of healing for the ancient Greeks. And here's a snake wrapped around a pole. And I had never seen that in ancient history before. And I thought, what? why would they do that? What is the significance of a pole around uh, a stake except that it's relating to something that happened in the Bible when Moses was told by God to put a, a snake, a copper snake, make it out of copper, put it on a pole, and people who looked at it were healed. It could very well be that people picked that up and, well, Hezekiah found that the children of Israel were even worshipping it, and he destroyed it on that basis because it became a symbol of adoration, not what God intended. It had its, its time, but he, he did that to teach them a lesson. But God has always been against these symbols of adoration. Now, keep that in your mind. When we go to Daniel chapter 2, I think we see the first reference to Rome in terms of god's prophecies concerning it for instance it talks about an image which was part of a dream king nebuchadnezzar had and it described uh, nations that came on the scene nebuchadnezzar was first in babylon and then uh, there came the greeks and uh, the persians rather and then the greeks and then the romans and then a time when there was uh, as it says in verse 41 there part of iron and part of clay but the determining metal for Rome was iron. And if you know a little bit about history, you could probably establish that without any reference to the Bible. But the Bible wanted people to know that as iron, in verse 40, was very strong, it breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So God was using this idea of something very strong in iron to represent the people that uh, would come at the time of following through on the greeks and then leading all the way down through history until the coming of the lord jesus christ now this is one of the things you'll see again and again in the way god refers to that metal of iron and to the uh, nation that it refers to, that is, the Roman people. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, he's talking about the same division of nations, except he talks about them a little differently in describing them as beasts instead of parts of an image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And yet he used the same metals, and he talked about this beast that had very strong iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. So our attention was attracted to that. It is attracted to Daniel chapter 7 to learn more about this iron teeth uh, in this beast and the way it devours. And and, uh, it must have been a very terrible, dreadful nation at its heyday. Well, look, in, a, in Rome, and you will find something like this, uh, this the statue, this uh, arch, uh, commemoration arch of Titus, uh, who came back from Jerusalem as the victor. You can see that in the inscriptions and parts of, the, of that uh, memorial that's there in Rome. I think it's quite wonderful that this happens so that people who are doubters of history can go to Rome and they can see this along with other arches that are there. About things that the Bible spoke about. about. And Jesus did. In Matthew 24. When people were looking at the temple. That Herod had built. And uh, they thought it was so beautiful. And Jesus said to them. In verse 2 of Matthew 24. Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you. Not one stone shall be left here upon another. That shall not be thrown down. And when you think of the the days in which they were living, they were the days of the Roman empire. When you think of the fact that God had in his, his uh, picture of what history would look like in the future to the prophet Daniel had described that very dreadful beast that would come and and uh, destroy other nations. But I think people were able to put two and two together. By the time the apostle Paul wrote, in 2 Thessalonians, the identification become more definite. It was had been a power and would be a power for about 2,000 years. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one, will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now there's a picture of Nero. So if you know a little bit about history and that man, you can understand how destructive he was and how people feared him. But the interesting thing about prophecy is, here's a man that stood up for what Daniel had said would be a a nation that would come that was gonna be very destructive and in particular of the Jewish people. And yet, the the lawlessness of this nation, in some way or another, not specified particularly here, would last for 2,000 years. Now, we know that because 2,000 years have gone by since those days when Paul wrote this. And it would be that he would meet the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned in the brightness of his coming, There has to be a meeting of a power and a representative of that power uh, that was Roman at the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's really interesting because Daniel chapter 2 spoke about the legs of the image. And in history, they were so much longer in in the time they lasted than the other parts of the image that it must have had very long legs. But they were iron. What was Roman stayed Roman right to the end of the destruction of the image. What was dreadful about the beast of Daniel chapter 7 is that it was Roman and that it followed the Greeks as the Roman Empire did, and that it would stay around in one form or another until it would be destroyed by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's another reference to it in 2 Thessalonians. So for Bible students, the fact that these things are joined together as they are, is really significant in telling us where we are in history. Now, Constantine, uh, if you are again a student of history, would be one of the emperors, which really had quite an effect on Christianity. So when we say Rome struggled with Christianity, well, here you are. Here's one of the ways in which it really struggled, because Constantine was the first person who actually warmed up to Christianity. And instead of being an adversary of it like Nero was, he decided to join with the Christians. But I think he actually achieved more by joining with the Christians and destroying it than uh, Nero did by persecuting it. Look at what it says here Constantine stood out because he became a Christian and unabashedly made Jesus the patron of his army by three. Thirteen, just two contenders remain, Constantine and Asinius. And the two jointly issued the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity a legal religion and officially ended the persecution. So, you know, you might think, well, that's great, you know, because now the Christians could do what they wanted to do. Oh, no, it didn't work out that way. Here's Constantine doing what he wanted to do. And in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, look at what it says. It explicitly affirms the Father as the one God and as the Almighty, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as begotten of the essence of the Father, and therefore as consubstantial with the Father, meaning of the same substance as the Father, very God of very God. Imagine Constantine. he was a pagan and yet now he's ruling he is presiding over a christian council to decide what the teaching of the christian church is and here he is deciding uh what is fundamental to christianity as you know if you go to the bible and you read what it says about the antichrist the antichrist would claim that jesus did not come in the flesh well he's telling us that in his understanding, and this is, you know, being blessed by all these people that assembled with him, and Arius is gone now because Arius didn't follow this. And yes, Jesus now is of one substance with God. Well, that led them to the idea of antichrist and more can be said about that, but not in this particular presentation. Now, Rome can be identified by other parts of the scripture because if we go to Revelation chapter 17, look at what it says in verse 16. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, I was impressed by this point that that picture you see there of the seven hills being identified was actually in a, in a travel guide that I had when I went to Rome to go around and have a look at uh, what the Catholics had there in the Vatican. And yes, there had been many cities probably that uh, are built on seven hills. And, uh, or at one time in their history, they, they were built on seven hills. But there's only one city has become famous for it. And that was the sense of the travel guide. Here is the city who's famous for having its city built on seven hills. Well, that's just wonderful because that's exactly what the verse says. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Well, which city was reigning over the kings of the earth at the time this revelation was given except Rome and continued to reign for centuries? Bible students don't miss points like this. Rome is being identified. Now I want you to look at three books, which I have used with uh, quite uh, a deal of interest. The book Hislop wrote, Alexander Hislop, in 1916, was called The Two Babylons. And I'll just say outright uh, that one of the Babylons was Babylon and the other Babylon was Rome. And then there was a, another minister, uh, a Christian minister. His name was Woodrow. He wrote in 1916, or 66, rather. And he wrote the book Babylon Mystery Religion, which was basically a takeoff of Hislop's work, The Two Babylons. And then there was another book written in 1997 by the same man, Woodrow. Same man, not just the, the same name. No, he was the same man. But he wrote this book, The Babylon Connection, which really he wrote to refute what he wrote in the first book, Babylon, Mystery Religion. Now I want to show you a couple of citations from this to illustrate what happened here. If we look at the first book, Babylon, Mystery Religion, this is what he he says on the cover. In a detailed biblical and historical account of how, when, why, and where ancient paganism was mixed with Christianity. From the early days of Babylon and the legends surrounding Nimrod, Seriamanus, and uh, Aramis, and uh, Tammuz, certain rites and rituals are traced in their various developments, thus providing clues whereby the mystery is solved. The apostles had predicted there would come a falling away, and the proof of their prediction is now evident in history. With such evidence in hand, All true believers should seek as never before the simplicity found in Christ himself and to earnestly contend for that original faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So Ralph Woodrow wrote this. He wrote this actually just based on the teachings found in the earlier book I referred to that uh, was about the two Babylons. But this is a citation from the cover of the second book. The Babylon connection shows that claims about Babylonian origins often lack connection. Takes a closer look at the often quoted two Babylon's by Alexander Hislop and provides some much needed clarification on the subject. Was Nimrod a deformed, ugly black man married to Sariamas a beautiful white woman with blue eyes and blonde hair was Seri Ramos an uh, originator of soprano singing and priestly celibacy? Was she the mother of Tammuz? Does the book of Revelation describe the Roman Catholic Church as mystery Babylon? Now, he's essentially stated this through questions, um, probably rhetorical questions. He wants us to come to a conclusion by the question. But really, he has written a book to... Um, show that his first book was written without good thought. Now I leave it up to you to, to look at the two in concern and, and be concerned about what is which is right, the one or the other. But I want to also say, and I'm gonna say this with a, a couple slides to illustrate why, that the book, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop was a very well-written and well-documented book. It might be an old book, it might not, uh, you know, have the latest font and be of the biggest uh, font size, but it is a a wonderfully uh, documented book. We counted up about 400 books this man cited when he wrote this book, The Two Babylons. Now that would would be fair very well probably better than many of the research papers of today. And so you can't overthrow what he had to say. Let's let's go on. Rome struggled with Christianity, who should be the greatest? Well, here's where the struggle started to, to show up because Jesus had specifically said this to his disciples in a dispute. It says in Luke 22, verses 24 to 26. Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, he who governs as he who serves." Now, he's talking to the very uh, elite apostles of the Christian movement at the time. There would be no dispute among them about who would be the greatest. There won't be anybody established as the greatest. But what did Rome go on to do? And who does the Pope represent today except what we're supposed to believe, the greatest, the one who is representing Jesus Christ. You see, you've got to see these disputes. You've got to see what Jesus actually had to say about this to understand, what has happened in history and how this has been a struggle if we go into 1st corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 this is what the apostle paul goes on to say i want you to know that the head of every man is christ the head of every woman is man and the head of christ is god or in colossians chapter 1 verse 18 and he is the head of the body the ecclesia who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Like, there's, there's nobody could stand on par with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's stated clearly by the Apostle Paul that he is the head of every man. And then in the Colossians, that he is the head of the church. And what is his credentials? His credentials are, he's the firstborn from the dead. Has any Pope ever been able to say that I am the second born from the dead or compare with Jesus at all on that basis? No, no one would ever do that at this stage because no one has ever been made immortal except for Jesus at this point. Now look at this pagan Roman influence, the title Aunt Max, and as it relates to Christianity, And as it relates to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, to watch out for this. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God well, this prophecy is about someone who would dare stand up and claim that he is the chief person and that uh, everyone needs to reckon that and, and to acknowledge that in his presence. Well, this idea of Pont Max, the chief ruler, goes back to the Times of Paganism, as you can see with Diocletian's coin here, his head here, and you can see on the back of that coin, Aunt Max. And then you look down, and you can see here's Johannes Paulus II, John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, Aunt Max. What is that title that was on ancient rulers of paganism in Rome got to do with Christianity? Except that... This is the struggle. This is the reason for the struggle that Rome was based in paganism and kept it and has tried to make Christianity accept it. That's what we want you to see. Well, this is what Alexander Hislop had to say in the book, The Two Babylons. He says, from the Pope downwards, all can be shown to be now radically Babylonian, the College of Cardinals, with the Pope at its head, is just the counterpart of the pagan Rome, a pagan college of Pontiffs, with it Pontifex Maximus, or sovereign, sovereign Pontiff, which had existed in Rome from the earliest times, and which is known to have been framed on the model of the grand original Council of Pontiffs at Babylon. The Pope now pretends supremacy in the church as the successor of Peter, to whom it is alleged that our Lord exclusively committed the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now this is the nature of Alexander Hislop's work as he called out Rome on this and he was able to illustrate from history and by quoting records of documents that existed for centuries of time to illustrate that the point wasn't just in his head but he got it from someplace. And there you have it with the coins. You see, it wasn't that he just got it from someplace. The very coins that people discover show how this idea of Pont Max has a pagan base and how, yes, it it came through the system right into the papacy so that even today we find the Pope's have it. If you look at something like Wikipedia, you can find this information. Uh, Look at this idea of the chief Uh, priest uh, Pont Max, you find the Latin for Supreme Pontiff, was the chief high priest of the College of Pontiffs, Collegium Pontificum, in ancient Rome. This was the most important position in the ancient Roman religion, open only to patricians until 254 BC when a plebeian first occupied this post. So it went from rich people to poorer people, at that particular time, but it was the highest, most important position in the ancient Roman religion to have that title Pont Max. Well, here we have Pope Francis. And what has he got in his coin? Pont Max. Now Bible students, you can't miss this. You've got to see that this has been a struggle, not with, you know, trying to find out what the teaching of the scripture is, It's been a struggle with paganism that Romans had with Christianity. And they haven't done very well because even in the office of the various highest ranking Roman Catholic, we see the remnants of the ancient pagan religion. High priest. Well, there is only one high priest for Christians and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been made high priest because he laid down his body With perfection before his God. And that's something we can't forget as we go through the other slides in this talk. Here's another factor. Rome's struggle with Christianity, the relics of their saints. Now, the Bible had taught this very clearly, just like the images that we said earlier. When it comes to relics, Haggai had said to the people of his day, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will he be unclean? And the priest answered and said, "It shall be unclean, because clearly, if you've touched a dead body, and you've touched a bone, or you've touched any part of the body that's uh, that's dead, you are unclean. Uncleanness is transmitted that by that way." In Ezekiel chapter 39, for an event yet to be fulfilled, it says that the children of Israel, for seven months. Will be burying the dead bodies in order to cleanse the land there is no cleanness there's nothing good about dead bones and dead bodies well maybe there is if you look at the christian church through the view of pagan rome and the roman catholic church because this is what the two babylons hislop's work has to say nothing is more characteristic of rome than the worship of relics Wherever a chapel is opened or a temple consecrated, it cannot be thoroughly complete without some relic or other of he saint or she saint to give sanctity to it. The relics of the saints and rotten bones of the martyrs form a great part of the wealth of the church. The grossest impostures have been practiced in regard to such relics, and the most driveling tales have been told of their wonder-working powers, and that too, by fathers, of high name in the records of Christendom. No wonder, um, the idea of, you know, the, the writers of of books have wanted to be careful what they had to say about this uh, book of Hyslops, The Two Babylon's, because it reveals so much about the Catholic Church, and it's hard to say why it is that 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 people have rewritten their books, but I think this is a clue that this practice of relics is very relevant today like here's John Henry Newman made a saint in 2019 and there's a picture from Rome of uh, his face along with the the uh, the standing uh image the rectal, uh, the the uh, reproduction of what they thought Peter might have looked like with the keys in his hand right in front of the Vatican I remember seeing this myself for the first time in and really wondered why the Roman Catholics would ever have that image out there. But look at what the Birmingham England uh, newspaper had to say about this idea of the saint. It says a first class relic of St. John Henry Newman was stolen from the Birmingham Oratory sometime in late January, this is 2020. The oratory announced in its weekly newsletter no, it illustrates, and there's a lot more information about this. This is just a quote I wanted to give you to illustrate that it it wasn't me saying this. It was a newspaper saying this. It's what people believe about this subject even today, is that the Roman Catholic Church does still use relics, something that came out of pagan Rome to sanctify things, something the Word of God says would be the last thing that you'd ever want to sanctify, part of your ecclesial building or your church building because it would defile it. And the fact that it was stolen must have meant that it had some value to somebody. Well, there's a book which has been written. It's just not a Christadelphian work, but I found it quite interesting to just look and survey what a man like Gary Wills has to say about uh, the history of the, of the popes. He says, papal sin in the past was blatant, as Catholics themselves realized when they painted popes roasting in hell on their own church walks. Surely the great abuses of the past, nepotism, the murders, the wars of conquest, no longer prevail, yet the sin of modern papacy, as revealed by Gary Wills in his penetrating new book, is every bit as real, though less obvious, than the old sins. So what we see is the continuing struggle. And certainly there was a a very tragic struggle between the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and the standards of the Bible, the standards of Christianity that has been written up. It's there for all of the people of the Roman Catholic religion to look and see and see if if they really feel so obligated to the Roman Catholic religion. Now, the Pope has recently visited Canada to deal with some of the problems of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Pope has a defense that he makes. And I'm as interested in this because I read this book, on Holy Orders, Tragedy at Mount Cashel. Because I know uh, a brother in Christ who goes to the Christadelphian meeting in St. John. And he knew personal, uh, uh, well, he had firsthand experience of Mount Cashel, and he was able to tell me what actually took uh, place there without respect to the book. And so I, I wondered how it is that the Christian religion itself hasn't, uh, you know, with all the churches that uh, claim to be Christian, hadn't taken and, and dealt with what the popes have done and what the Roman Catholic Church is doing today and what they're having to defend themselves for in the, in the, the various pedophile cases that they've had to deal with. You see, and this book dealt with that, of how these things were hushed up, and uh, priests that were involved in it were just sent somewhere else. And uh, this broke in 1990, so that's quite a while ago. And it's really only been, uh, you know, 30 years, but the 30 years have, have talked about this subject again and again. So what does the Pope say in his defense? Well, he blames the devil. Look at this. This is taken from the Associated Press 2018. Francis, in his Saturday prayer request, also cited St. Michael and urging prayers be directed to the saint who protects us and helps us in the fight against evil. He quoted the famous prayer to St. Michael that exhorts the saint to protect the faithful against the wickedness and snares of the devil and ask for God to rebuke him and to cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl through the world seeking the ruin of souls. Well, I can see with what the Catholics believe about the devil, how you could say this, but is that really the cause? Isn't it to deal with the people themselves and the policy, the teaching of the church concerning celibacy, etc. That this is happening well here's another newspaper and this is what it said about the same time he says the pope blames the devil the devil is alive and well working overtime to undermine the roman catholic church pope francis says in fact the pope is so convinced that satan is to blame for the sexual abuse crisis and deep divisions racking the church that he has asked catholics around the world to recite a prayer every day in october to try to beat him back but what are they doing with the priests that are really involved? See, That seems to be the way to slip out from under what the real problem is, is to blame the devil. And if you knew really what the Bible teaches about the devil, they aren't able to slip out from what the Bible contends can, that the devil really is. So here's a citation. From the Chicago Tribune of why people still belong to the Catholic Church. Why do you stay? Well, here's what one person had to say. Well, sometimes I engage with the gospel and scriptures on an intellectual level. Sometimes I just sit there, numbed by the events of the week, and appreciate both the physical and liturgical architecture. Being at a Catholic Mass is like being inside a sonnet. Though what's inside changes, the structure stays the same with the Gloria, the Alleluia, the Sanctus, the Agnes Dei. It's comforting to know that the same ritual, the same structure is being repeated every day in hundreds of languages around the world. Something like the Pope. Just think of something else. The suffering roughly what that person is saying. So let's ask another person. And this is what she had to say. People have asked me how I, as a progressive and a feminist, can stay in the church with all its problems. I stay for the same reason I stay in the United States, whose leaders have also been guilty of crimes throughout the decades. It is beautiful, and it belongs to me. It is my home. Why should I let some ignorant old guys keep it for themselves? Unless I'm actually driven out, bell, book, and candle, I'll stay and serve and work for peace. So again, you see, it's not dealing with the issues. It's not It's not condemning the issues. It's not showing that the Bible and the church have gone separate ways. It's just I'm staying and I'll work for something that I think is positive. Bible students, pay attention to the Bible. In Revelation chapter 18, verses 2 and 8, it says this. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Jesus is prepared to deal with the false claims of the Roman Catholic Church and what they have tried to do to justify the paganism, which is part of their teaching. So he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon, the greatest fallen is fallen. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Therefore her plagues will come in one day. Death, mourning, and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. We need to remember those verses and repeat them, so that, like, if you if you like, Catholics have, have do this at times. They take things out and they repeat sayings. Repeat this saying, because this is, I think, the only way that people can escape this this dilemma, which has happened in the Roman Catholic Church. And this thing that God hates to such a degree, he will utterly destroy it. He says in verse 4 of that same chapter, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And Bible students, that's what we want you to think of. We want you to think of helping people get out of her. There are a number of Christadelphians who have recognized the false claims of this church and how God will ultimately destroy her because she has not followed what the scriptures teach. So, this is a good thing for us to be involved in helping people that come out of her. May God bless your work in his service. Thank you.